Welcome to Conversations in Process, hosted by Jay McDaniel and co-sponsored by the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. These conversations explore a way of understanding and living in the world that emphasizes the continual becoming and fundamental interconnectedness of all things. But they're also intended to provide an ongoing interaction in which the stories, insights, and wisdom of each conversation partner can expand your horizon and enrich your journey and process. In this conversation, Jay visits with Charles Eisenstein. On his website, Charles describes a lifelong journey of discovery, beginning with an early interest in the big existential questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? To his undergraduate studies in math and philosophy at Yale University, his work as a translator in Taiwan, and a part-time instructor at Penn State University. Of that period, he writes, an irrepressible feeling I am not here to be doing this, took control of my life. It was during his late 30s that Charles came to the insights that he spent four years articulating in his first book, The Ascent of Humanity. That experience of writing and what he describes as the reordering of his world eventually brought him to his current path as a speaker, essayist, and author of more books, including Sacred Economics and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. Hey, Charles. Thanks for being with us today. And I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, when I read the most, the more beautiful, most, is it more beautiful world? Yeah. Most more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. I read it with my Whiteheadian eyes and I thought he says so much better what I'd like to say than, than I or other Whiteheadians say. So I'm just looking forward to getting to know your ideas and forming a few bridges with Whitehead in as much as is possible, but not necessary. So uh, presuming that the rest of those listening in don't know your thought as well as hundreds of thousands do know your thought, could you provide just a little introduction to us? Yeah, well, well, the, the uh, overarching theme of my work is basically it's about the uh, changing mythology that runs our civilization or the, the um, transition in our defining narratives that happens through a process of, of breakdown, of, of disintegration, of a space between stories, and then the birth of a successor to the world defining stories that we, that I was gonna say that we carry, but I would say that, that carry us today. Um, and, one way that I describe it is it's a transition from a story of separation, a, a separate self in an objective world of other, uh, to a story of interconnection, interdependency, interbeing. You could also say interbecoming, uh, because when you understand that existence itself is relational, then you no longer can think of, in terms of separate concrete selves having relationships but it's more that the relationships create the selves. If, if you wanted to, to bring it down to some uh, foundational bottom, it would be more accurate to say that than it would be to say separate beings having relationships, like what is elemental here? But even that whole uh, rubric of find the elemental thing and build up from that, in a subtle way, that is part of the old story too. And here I'm already getting really philosophical, but but basically what I do in my work is I apply that that frame of a transition in our stories to different issues, uh, economy, technology, politics, medicine, um, uh, you know, whatever. I found it to be a very useful lens to understand what's going on here and to uh, draw parallels and connections among phenomena um, that can be quite disturbing and despair generating uh, until they're understand as part of a larger movement. Uh, did this insight emerge uh, for you suddenly or gradually? Can you say a word about how you came upon this insight that's so important to all of us? Well, I think that this, this insight is uh, an emerging field uh, so I'm certainly not the guy who invented this idea, but many people have been thinking uh, and, and see, thinking along these lines and, and seeing different parts of this structure emerging through the mist. 
so even, you know, I, I, and I'm not necessarily directly influenced by people like Whitehead or David Bohm uh, or Lewis Mumford uh, or Ilya Prigogine, uh, but in some cases directly influenced, in some cases uh, indirectly influenced just because they're, they're now they've become latent in the intellectual culture. So I'm, I'm Lynn Margulis, you know, I'm, I'm drawing on these different people. Uh, it, it, I, I like to use the metaphor of a, of a water table rising and the water now gushing forth from many springs uh, and, and then feeding back into the water table that rises still further. So um, the, my, you know, my, my awakening to this way of looking at the world came through not only intellectual influences, but personal experiences too, that, that gave me direct experience, direct experiential confirmation that uh, reality isn't quite what I was taught, uh, you know, in my education uh, or by the, the culture. Uh, and, and once I had a few experiences that confirmed my suspicion that there was more to this than I was being told, then I began to question everything. And, and, and also like, you know, I came from a politically radical family, somewhat radical anyway. Uh, and I was aware at a young age that there was something profoundly wrong with the world and wanted to understand the origin of the wrongness. And, and so I dug down, none of, the, none of the answers that were proffered went deep enough like Marxism, for example, or um, anti-civilization thinkers. Uh, none of them really went deep enough. And that's how I arrived at the world generating mythology. But, you know, I mean, it was just like, often it was just like something as mundane as walking through a suburban neighborhood and like, where are all the kids? When I was a kid, they would have, this place would have been packed with kids playing outside. What happened? And it traces, I trace it to, oh, television. Oh, air conditioning. Oh, the automobile. Oh, the homogenization of the economy that disconnects people from place. Ah, and it just goes down and down and down until I get to the myth of separation. You know, Charles, when you articulated that myth um, a minute or so ago, you, you noted the distinction between assuming that first individuals exist and then they happen to be deeply related to other things. And the idea that actually it's the relationships that are the origin of, of the individual. Um, can you say just a little bit more about that difference? Yeah, I guess the uh, naive Cartesian mind would like to have this kernel of self that is inviolate. And then there's the maybe outer layers of self that are formed through interactions with others in the world. And, and the way I came to understand it is that all the way down to the core, it is relationship, which means that I cannot insulate myself from the world or from other people. One of the delusions of technology and of, and of technological progress is that um, we could, in theory, we could destroy nature, destroy the rainforests, poison the earth, but, or, or um, oppress other populations. And if we can build a complete enough bubble around ourselves, we'll be able to insulate ourselves from those effects. So we destroy the biosphere, well, no problem. We can make artificial food. Um, it's already being developed in, uh, it's called precision fermentation. You know, we don't need nature anymore. We can alter the climate. We can bleach the sky white with sulfur aerosols. We could have bubble cities, bubble suits, protect ourselves from the world and, and exert our mastery and dominance over the world. That, that is a product of thinking that there is this kernel of self separate from the world. Like it, what happens to, to you, what happens to the rainforest, what happens to the whales need not affect me.
but when I understand that my very existence is is at its core part of the existence of the whales, then or the you know people in Yemen or somewhere else, then I know that that whatever happens to them is in some way happening to me because my existence is relational. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that, if that is helpful. No, it, but, yeah, you know, that makes such sense to, to someone like me influenced by Whitehead because his idea is that we live moment by moment. Our very selves uh, are not substantial selves that endure unchanged from birth to death but rather uh, we're, we're different at each moment and we're constituted by our experience. And then he has a further idea that every experience at every moment begins with what he calls experience in the mode of causal efficacy. And that's his way of saying that in the beginning are the many of the world, the many of the universe, the many of this location. And they... Um, give rise, in a sense, to us. It's not that first we exist in the moment and then reach out to the world. It's that first the world exists and then gives rise to us. And that giving rise, he calls experience in the mode of causal efficacy. Yeah. He thinks that it's largely unconscious. Uh, it, you know, it, it, uh, there's a lot to experience besides conscious experience for Whitehead. There's a whole realm moment by moment by which we're influenced and shaped by what is other than us and are born from what is other than, than us. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, one question that can emerge for a lot of folks is, I get that and I see how unique that is, unique that way of thinking is, but there's also the sense of individuality. There's also the sense that I respond to the world that helps create me. Um, where in your thought, is there place in your thought uh, for that autonomy, for that, if not independence, then at least agency of the self? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it gets really metaphysical, but uh, there's, you know, there's a, uh, there's one, uh, interpretation of quantum mechanics that basically says it may look to us that there's, you know, a nearly infinite number of electrons out there, but there's actually only one electron popping in and out of existence. Um, it's like all of the electrons are the same electron. And I guess if you go down, if you follow supersymmetry down to the, to the bottom, maybe all existence is just one particle. So by the same token, uh, we might understand each of ourselves as attention, looking out onto the world from a different shifting locus in the matrix of relationships. And then the question is, well, how is my attention any different from your attention? Ultimately, it's the same attention. So that means that our, and this is this is a um, venerable, spiritual teaching uh, in certain lineages, um, what it means is that perhaps you could consider that our only real agency and choice is the choice of what to pay attention to. And that all of our other apparent choices come through the, um, come, come as an automatic product. This is the teaching of the automaticity of man, come as the automatic product of what we have created ourselves to be through the exercise of attention. And, and so it's, it, it, the dualistic mind has trouble grasping this paradox that in, in essence, our choice of what to pay attention to is God making the choice of what to create. So the agency, my agency is not separate from your agency or from God's agency. Uh, Yet that does not invalidate the experience of agency. So, I don't know. I mean, it, it can get really uh, confusing because the concepts that we're invoking are they have they have separation built into their built into them. So, well, well, we have full permission in this podcast to be as metaphysical as we want. So we right. can 
we can go there again and again. Uh, I, I'm going to turn to um, some of the five issues that I sent you before this podcast. And the first was called Trusting in the Logic of the Heart. And I'll try to link that with what we've been talking about so far. Um, it, it's, it's one thing to say everything's interconnected. Um, everything forms a systematic whole, you know, whatever we want to say, but it's, it's an object of the intellect. It's something I understand intellectually. I can draw diagrams. I can nod my head in assent to the proposition everything's interconnected. But that's very different from feeling the interconnectedness, from knowing it um, emotionally, spiritually, existentially, from the heart. Um, what place does that kind of knowing, the logic of the heart, have in, in your own way of thinking? Yeah, thank you for that question. Yeah, it's not like I'm saying, okay, here's the self and I make a diagram and it's look, it's a holograph and look, there's a bit of you inside of me and me inside of you and we're all evolving together and like, yes. Um, but if that's all you have, then you're not going to be able to make accurate choices just based on that. Um, what? But I think the utility of, of articulating an intersubjective, interbecoming, interbeing model is that it validates the logic of the heart because our hearts understand, in our hearts we understand that we're not separate. We understand that our personal interactions and our invisible choices are significant that every action has an effect that the person before me is important even if my my uh received causal logic logic based on newtonian forces cannot explain why is it important to visit my mother and sit with her day after day as she's going through the dying process like the mind of separation does not understand that like well she's going to die anyway you know i should spend my time with the kids if i want to have an effect on the future no one's going to know ever what words were spoken between me and my mother in those moments so it's it's so the mind that we've that has been i mean other cultures um would not have this problem but the logic that our minds have have absorbed growing up and being educated in what's still a Newtonian paradigm. Um, and I could, I can elaborate on that if you want me to, but, but I'll just assert it right now. Um, that logic does not allow for the hearts knowing that this is the most important thing I could be doing right now. So the, the purpose of this, of this philosophy, I think is to end the war between the mind and the heart. Because when we have this, this um, other model, this other story, then it validates what the heart knows. Uh, so the heart's uh, communication to to the mind is 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 through the emotions, through the feelings, through the especially the feeling of care, the feeling of love. Um, and and it's hard to listen to that sometimes because sometimes it contradicts the logic of separation. Like if you, it could be, for example, a generous act and the mind's like, well, hold on. I'm not gonna be okay if I do that. I can't afford to do that. That's irrational. That person's just gonna use the money to get drunk anyway, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe they will, and maybe they won't. And how do you know that, that maybe that gesture of, yeah, go get yourself a drink. Maybe that, is that is a violation of that person's world where everybody's in it for themselves and is judging them. And maybe that is what, that is a seed that someday sprouts into rehabilitation. Like we don't know, how do we know this world is so complex? It, it, this is part of, partly Ilya Prigogine's um, influence that I, I read his work when I was very young, you know, uh, um, sensitive dependence on initial conditions. And, and like, how do you know? Do we even do we have any possible way of knowing? And I think the answer is yes. We have a holistic organ 
that um, that is is an organ of a vast orchestrating intelligence. It's it's a communicating organ to us. It 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 listens to to get a little um, Steinerian here. You could say that that the blood uh, absorbs all of this information. Uh, and then it passes through the heart, which is primarily, if you listen to Steiner, you know, it's not actually a pump. The heart receives and passes forth, but it can't actually pump a viscous liquid through miles of tiny capillaries. Impossible. It, it receives, and the, the motion of the blood is generated by the body, not by the heart. Uh, so it receives all of this information, and then, you know, through all of its hormones and things, it's, it sends messages and peptides, you know, it sends messages out through the body, but it's a, it's a listening organ in, you know, this literal biological sense, but also in a, a, a larger sense of integrating all that is happening um, and communicating it um, to our to our minds. Um, I'd like to to affirm what you just said and and put it briefly in, in White Eddian terms, um, which resonate, I think, with what you're saying. So a word about heart knowledge. Um, in, in a White Eddian context, there are at least two kinds, both of them quite valuable. And one is uh, empathy. It's it's and in white in white hidden context, it's actually feeling the feelings of others, uh, a sense of what's what their psychological states are, what their emotions are, what their intentions are, what their attitudes are, what their sufferings are, what their joys are, and in a white hidden white hidden context, we actually do at every level at every moment actually feel the feelings at least of our own past, but also the feelings of others. So it's empathy. And, and that precedes uh, intellection, that precedes analysis, which is also good, but it precedes it. The other kind of heart knowledge in Whitehead is a kind of knowing of what to do in the situation at hand, whatever that situation is, and uh, Whitehead speaks of that as the initial aim within experience. And, and that's technical terminology, but he thinks that it derives from uh, the cosmic intelligence, the cosmic wisdom, the cosmic life. And that for him is God. So if you imagine God as a kind of the cosmic wisdom of the universe, but, but also with consciousness, he, he believes. Um, we experience God as that possibility to as the knowing of that possibility to do what is needed in the circumstance at hand mm -hmm. whatever that is so empathy and that kind of discernment i think in in a christian context that's traditionally called discernment discerning what to do in the moment at hand i would say those are two forms of of heart knowledge i don't know if yeah. that makes sense to you but yeah that's totally congruent um the 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 what I was saying about about the integration of um, all like this information, you know, this 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 divine information, it doesn't have to be limited to some supernatural force, but it, you could also say that it is the sum total of everything happening in in the world on or in the universe, even in the cosmos, that uh, is received by the blood. And then by the heart, um, and that totality of information is what you need to make an accurate choice. That takes all of that into account, and that this um, so 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 choice is actually the, the native function of the heart. We, we're we're supposed to choose from our hearts. Our ideology, the ide ideology of modernity, and especially of economics contravenes that truth and offers instead this elaborate cost-benefit um, mm -hmm. mode of choice-making, which is made explicit in economics, the theory of the firm, you know, the theory of the rational individual, where you, you seek to maximize rational self-interest. Um, 
the, the irony is that even if you attempt, even if you say, yes, I'm here to rationalize, to maximize rational self-interest, you still don't know even how to do that through a process of ratiocination. You know, it, you, you even, like you don't have enough information. You can't integrate that amount of information. So it becomes this delusion where you think that you're pursuing rational self-interest and you get more and more miserable as an individual and look at our society too. By every measure, we're, well, actually that's changing even too, but for a long time, by every measure, our society was progressing. Per capita GDP, lifespan, educational levels, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, obviously to, to give expression to our growing sense that things are not progressing, we have to expand our metrics. Anyway, that's a whole other, I'm not gonna get into that right now, but but um, yeah, and as for empathy, um, yeah, this is, this is the question that I, that I offer now, especially in these polarized times. Um, what is it like to be you? And that basically is, it gives permission to us uh, to, to listen to this heart knowledge. Yeah. Um, that question is an, is an invitation. It's an orientation because yeah. we can't reason out what it's like to be you. But in fact, and you know, it, politically, it's a little incorrect to say that you could ever know what it's like to be, you know, a black person or a handicapped person or this or that. But everybody knows and has had the experience of empathy, where in that moment you do know what it's like to be somebody else. Okay. That without that as a society, we're lost. Because without that, all we have is our projections, our presumptions, um, our judgments, our, our categorizations, which are usually dehumanizations of the enemy. And how is democracy possible when we reduce each other? Well, I just, I just agree. Um, on the what is it like to be you, uh, for my part, I, I find it helpful to ask somebody um, what kind of music do you like what do you enjoy listening to so I want to know about the suffering but I also want to know about the joy I want to know what what you enjoy and tell me tell me your story you talk I'll listen I'll listen you talk mm -hmm. and you don't have to get it right the first time or the second or the third I'll listen again. So I wonder if democracy doesn't need, require a capacity for rather deep listening. Um, yeah. And if we can't be educated into that in a way, because you know, in our family situations, some of us are, are in family situations where we're invited to listen and think of listening as a good thing and, and some not. Um, so I want to turn to nature in a second, Charles, but do you want to respond to anything I just said before we, turn to the more than human world? I mean, oh God, I mean, we could, you know, we could talk the whole time just about that. Um, and what, what prevents us from listening, mm -hmm. um, the trauma, you know, the, there's a lot of healing that has to happen to recover the capacity to listen. Um, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll leave that there, there, but we can return anytime we want to, to that. Um, in, in the Whiteheadian context, but I think in, in your context as well, from your perspective, we can listen to more than the human because there's something like an energy, something like an aliveness. Oh, Whitehead would say feeling. There's actually something like feeling um, in the hills and the rivers and the trees and the stars and the plants and, of course, the other animals. Yeah. I, did you want to say anything about your sense of an organic universe where all things are living? Um, if, if that's how you see things, if not, yeah. how do you see things? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I, part of one, of one of the things that I write and speak about, you know, depending on the occasion is uh, to upend the hierarchy of being that we've inherited and that goes back thousands of years, uh, that puts human beings at the apex of beingness and denies other beings full 
full subjectivity. Uh, really, that's what it comes down to. It says that that um, animals, then maybe they have some beingness, some subjectivity. Plants, you know, they're just kind of vegetative, uh, and of course, rocks or clouds or you know, the sun. These are not beings at all. So that puts us in the in the Cartesian position of being the lords and possessors of nature. And and if there is no beingness or intelligence or sentience outside the human or at least the animate world, then our then there's no reason not to order that world um, according to our own self-interest, which even in Whiteheadian terms um, is unrelated. There's no self, even, you know, there's no other selves out there um, to be in real relation to if they're not beings, you know, if it's just uh, like, it's, I can't even raise an example. I can't even make an analogy because like here I could say, say if it's just like a brick, you know, here's a brick, like that, that is the metaphor for, for an insensate being. But if you go into the, a childlike mind and you're like, well, what is it like to be this brick? And you tune into it, you will have an experience. Something will be knocking at the door that you have to deny with effort. And it might bring up like uh, the echo of traumas when that knowing and that experience of being in an enchanted world full of beings was denied as children. It does, it's not nourished in this culture. So, so I can't even say we're treating the world as if it were just a bunch of bricks because bricks aren't just a bunch of bricks either. So, yeah, um, to, to understand, now it's not to say that a brick has the same consciousness as a human. It's the, the experience of being a brick is very different than the experience of being a human. But this uh, reversal of uh, anthropocentrism that, that doesn't deny the special specialness of human beings. It's not to make ourselves unimportant. Actually, we are <clears throat> very important. We are a new creation of nature and, and not um, dispensable. In the environmental movement, there's this idea that nature, that earth would be, would be better off without us, uh, which is at, at a deep level, a denial of the intelligence of nature that is in fact part of the problem. But when we understand that nature is purposeful, that that that, and you could put it in theologic terms too, that there is a God in all things, that there is intelligence in all things as an entirety and in each of these things as well, but also in all things, then you understand that, that there's an intelligence to our being too. Why are we here? That becomes a question that we don't ask if, there, if our ideology says that there's no answer. And the ideology that still prevails today um, in like say it's Darwinian form, it's well, we're an accident and we're here to be here. We're here to survive, to reproduce. It, it, there, even the concept of a purpose, like there's no teleology even possible in a Newtonian Darwinian worldview. Not that Newton or Darwin actually <laughs> would necessarily subscribe to that. Um, Newton was of course a mystic and, and Darwin was a deeply humble man who did not presume to know everything. Uh, but, but as long as we're trapped in those ideologies, we don't even ask the question, why are we here? And that is a scary question. It is a subversive question. When people in our society start asking that question, they stop conforming to the expectations of the world destroying machine. It's a troublesome question. Um, and, and that trouble goes all the way to the base level of our mythology. And this is the question we need to start asking because if we do not have a collective purpose here that we, that a, a, a source of meaning that we can 
that we can all draw from in making meaning of our own lives, then we're not going to have any coherence. And it will become true that we are just here to survive, to reproduce, to maximize, to, to maximize self-interest. That becomes true when we subscribe to the story in which it's true. And so what part of my, my intentions in doing my work is simply to open up that question and to, to validate our hearts knowing that it has an answer. There is a reason why we are here. We were, we were created intelligently. Everybody knows this on some level. That's why that question, why am I here, becomes so powerful the longer it is denied. It's called a midlife crisis. <laughs> well, I, you put that uh, so beautifully, and I, I think I'll, I'm going to put that in a Whiteheadian way, but it certainly doesn't. It's not going to match the way you put it, but it might be interesting for you to know. Uh, Whitehead believed uh, that we live in a teleological universe, and the universe does indeed have purpose. And one word that he used to name that purpose is beauty. And so he thinks there's a, um, a lure toward beauty within the depths of the universe, felt no less by the no less by the atoms as by the porpoises as by the people. And it's a lure toward um, satisfying existence in relation to um, the rest of the world and in a spirit of harmony and intensity. And he did think he also believed in God. And he, you know, uh, Charles, a lot of people think of God as something supernatural, but that's not Whiteheadian language. He thought that nature is, is more enchanted, bigger than, than we often realize. And nature includes a universe that has a mind or a soul. There's a soul of the universe. And the aim of that soul is for the realization of beauty in, 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 in finite ways everywhere. And in the human sphere, that can take the form of love. Uh, so to give my life to the great work of helping to add whatever beauty is possible um, and add whatever love is possible. That, that Whitehead thinks that's not a figment of my imagination, but actually responding to the very purposiveness that's within the depths of things. Yes. I, I, I don't know how that sounds to yes. you. But oh, I, yes. Um, yeah. If I had to give an answer to, to the question, why are we here? It's the same answer that everybody, that all beings are here for. It's to contribute to life and beauty on earth and ultimately beyond earth. That's why we're here. Uh, and that's why, that's what, if you, you the, like the history of this planet is that it becomes more and more and more alive. And each new kind of being contributes to that. So multicellular organisms, they made the planet more complex. There were more relationships because of these flowering plants, um, you, you know, like whatever, and, and human beings also. Now, so far, we've made the world less alive, but we are a new expression, at least in potential, of complexity. Uh, and, and we are a vehicle for new forms of beauty. And we can see that that does not have to come at the expense of other beauty. Like we can see examples of, of the works of human minds and hands that actually contribute more to the beauty, like a Taoist temple. It doesn't detract from the landscape. It's not this thing that's plopped on that mars the landscape, but it, it enhances the landscape. It is a, it's a sacrament. And so we can see that, that the purpose of humanity uh, ultimately is inseparable from living in a ceremonial, sacramental way. That everything we do is a gift that redeems the gift that we've received, the gift of life. Uh, that's why I, I, one of the main themes that I work with is, is gift and applying it to, to economics, but also ecology and also to, to art, human purpose. Um, that that our 
that we are here as a gift and that not only that, we are a gift. We are a gift to the world and each one of us also in that sense as well, we are a gift to the world. Um, and it's, you know, hasn't seemed that way looking at what humans have done to the planet yet there are counterexamples that we can draw from as we awaken as a, as a civilization, as we awaken to that purpose. So yeah, I would uh, concur with Whitehead here on that. You know, I taught the world's religions to college undergraduates for 39 years. So I, I think in terms of the world's religions, and I know that both you, you and I have some background in, in, in East Asian, uh, or at least I do in East Asian context. I um, was the English teacher for a Zen Buddhist priest from Kyoto for many years and was reading Whitehead as I was actually teaching him English, etc. So all that's part of my framework. And I say that because I'm, I'm about to use a, a, a Christian word, and I just don't want to suggest that that's the only word available, but, but Christians right. have the word, have the word grace. Yes. And, and to learn to, to see the world as grace, um, grace as the gift of others in their diversity and beauty and nourishment to your life and the grace that you might also share with them. Mm -hmm. uh, contributing to them. So I wonder, do you see connections between grace and gift uh, in your own mind? Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love the word grace because I don't quite know what it means. There's, uh, there's something elemental about it that can't be reduced to other words and other definitions. It definitely has something of, of the nature of gift. Like if you say by the grace of God, it means that it's not that you earned it. It's not that you uh, uh, submitted an order for this thing to come. Uh, there's a recognition, in fact, that uh, like for me, it's a hesitancy actually even to pray because who am I to know what this world really needs? Um, and, and so another, but another way I understand grace, so it's like things that come as the gift of God, uh, but another way I understand grace is simply to do things more beautifully than they need to be done for any good reason. You know, why, why, why would somebody need to set the table gracefully? And they do that not because they're making a performance of it not because somebody's watching, I'm only going to do it gracefully then. Um, that kind of fake grace isn't actually that impressive. It, it has to come from a place that that where it's a way of being um, that does it whether or not somebody's looking. That, And you can detect that, it, whether it is or is not that. So it's a kind of a cultivation. And I think that ultimately it's the cultivation of acting in... Uh, in alignment with the beauty that wants to become in the world. I think of your example or, or of someone going to see their mother, their aging mother. Uh, I, I have that certainly in my life, going to see my aging mother, age 101, um, when she died and being at her bedside and going to see her before that and singing to her and uh, praying with her. And there was something beautiful about that, even though the death is, is uh, sad also, but there's something quite beautiful. It's, there's a poignancy and it's, it doesn't need to be recognized. No one needs to name it. No one needs to, actually, no one needs to say thank you. Thank you is a very beautiful phrase, but nobody needs to say that because it comes from the heart in a kind of good way. And that, that's what I hear. Um, hear part, that's what I hear. I also love the phrase, Charles, elemental grace. May I recommend that you have that as the title to your next book? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, so the grace of the hills and the rivers and the trees and the stars and the atoms and and, you know, the giving, the spontaneous, unasked for, 
Dessert is not an issue. That's not even a relevant question. But it's, yeah, kind it's of so beautiful, gift. we wouldn't even know to ask for it. Right, right, yeah. That's that's yeah. the level of gift. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, let's come down to earth in our last, we've been on the earth the whole time. Um, let's enter more deeply into earth in the last. Um, I know that you've got a side of you that's been involved with community animation, the development of local communities, concern for economics, concern for agriculture. Um, do you want to say anything um, in way of closing about what the great work work looks like uh, socially today in terms of uh, fostering healthy communities? Anything on your mind you wanna share? It starts with upholding the value of community and the value of relationship. Um, if I may make a allusion to our current public health situation and priorities, we are, now in a time where our our collective response to COVID has been to do everything we can to preserve existence, uh, to extend life, to minimize risk. And as we do that, other values fall by the wayside that in a healthy society might be more important or as important as death avoidance and risk minimization, like, and, and I would like I would like to to for us to, and I think this ultimately comes down again to our basic mythology, because in that mythology there is no purpose, and existence is not relational. So, of course, you're going to live to minimize risk and preserve the separate self as long as possible. And it's hard to see from that place that maybe hugs and and faces and gatherings and singing together and dancing together and performance arts and and like to see that those are important because their importance their value is invisible from preserving life as long as possible and we have a medical system in which the worst possible outcome is death other cultures did not think that the worst thing that could happen to you is death in other cultures, the worst punishment was banishment. That was worse than execution, banishment, ostracism. Uh, no one looks at you. No one talks to you. You're shunned. That is a, a, an, a, an organic reflex of societies. So, so it's kind of like that's happening to everybody. And it's not going to change unless we and this doesn't, I'm not, this is not only applying to, to COVID-19, it's also applying to the way that we structure our economy, where we outsource relationships and make them into professional services. Things like taking care of children, things like play, uh, things like um, uh, recreation, um, uh, music, uh, food preparation, the building of houses, like, Everything is outsourced now. Whereas even when I was a kid, like we rarely paid for childcare. A neighbor could always watch the kids, you know, that, and as that gets outsourced, the economy grows, GDP rises, and we're more and more lonely. So I guess this is a, yeah, this is a, an, another overarching theme is to come back together again, to rebuild society in, um, so that it embodies our growing consciousness of interbeing, of interconnection, of, of this relational nature of life, that we cannot actually be whole or happy without a full complement of relationships. And, and you can apply this in so many ways. You can apply it to like, New England Journal of Medicine recent article linking serious COVID symptoms with gut dysbiosis. Okay, so there's a community in your gut that when it is destroyed, you cannot be healthy. Or, uh, or the biggest predictor of, of ill health and early death is loneliness. It's not drinking. You're better off drinking and smoking and being social than you are you know, living an abstemious uh, solitary life. So this is like, there's so many ways you can apply this um, to, to, and, and yeah. And so I want to say that, that 
in um, in congruence to process philosophy, to bring that into the world, we it is time to uphold these the values of relationship in every sense, ecological. I could also talk about that. Um, I could talk about how it applies to agriculture. Like in every field, this is the the key that turns the lock. Uh, restoring, honoring relationship, holding relationships sacred. Uh, so I'm a lay associate in a Benedictine community um, in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And if you know anything about the Benedictines, they're a, a, one of their emphases is community and finding God in community and learning to and living in community without sentimentalizing it. It can be difficult, but something deep is known in community that's not known elsewhere. And so one of my favorite sisters at the monastery um, is a woman named Macrina Wiedeker, and she just passed away. But one of the things she once said to me and to others is, um, if you live alone, whose feet will you have to wash? Because, you know, in the Benedictine community, there's a ritual of, of foot washing. How could you imagine living without having others Feet, other feet to wash. Yeah. And that was her way of saying, you know, it really, community isn't only that we're nourished by others. It's that we have the opportunity to nourish others. And we need to do that. That's why yeah. we're here. It's an That's exercise. part of, yeah. right. If you're so, not doing that, you will not be happy. If you're not contributing <laughs> to life and beauty on earth, you'll always have the feeling that I'm not doing what I was put here to do. Yeah. Uh, hey, well, thank you so much for this conversation today. And um, may people listen to it and, and learn from you and uh, we'll be in further touch. Any, any last moment of guidance you want to offer us or wisdom or thought that you want to share before we close? Uh, I, I just want to thank you, Jay, for, for being such an incredible host. And I really enjoyed just seeing the uh, the love on your face for 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 life in the world and your kindness and uh, and graciousness and uh, generosity. Um, it really made me feel comfortable and, and I feel grateful. Well, you're very easy to be comfortable with. So thank you so much, Charles. Blessings abound. Thank bye you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Conversations in Process is a co-production of the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. If you'd like to support this podcast and help us realize our aim to advance wisdom, harmony, and the common good, please consider making a donation by visiting cobb.institute. That's cobb.institute and clicking on the donate button.